Death of Ayrton Senna left Formula One and Williams lacking in star power in 1994. It didn't take long for a plan to be hatched to bring back Nigel Mansell into the fold, less than two years after he'd fallen out with Williams and walked away from F1 entirely as the reigning world champion. This is the full story of how senior figures at Williams, and of course F1 ringmaster Bernie Eccleston, found a way through Mansell's IndyCar contracts in America to get him back for four races in 1994 and why it didn't materialise into the full-time drive Mansell was expecting for the following season. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me for this look back at one of F1's more high-profile cameos are Ed Straw and ex-F1 driver and Sky Sports expert Karun Chanduk. Now Karun, welcome along. When we first discussed the episodes we were doing in this series of Bring Back V10s, you were quick to express your interest in jumping on for this one. So what is it about the Mansell comeback in 1994 that stands out for you? It's just the drama of it all, isn't it? It's classic Nigel Mansell, the, the, you know, the shock arrival, then bang, qualifying on the front row, then his battle of the lazy, then finishes on a high by winning the last race, gets pole position, then doesn't come back the following year. I mean, there's just so many elements to it um, in a very... In a very dramatic Nigel Mansell-esque way. Yeah, we, we constantly get questions about, oh, when are you going to do this Mansell story? When are you going to do this one? You know, Nigel's career obviously covered part of the era that we don't cover in the 80s, but just in the few years we had of him in this era, post-1989, he's given us plenty to talk about. So this is going to be a great episode. Ed, always good to have you and Karun teaming up for another episode of Bring Back V10. So what comes to mind first for you, when you think back to Mansell in 94? Well, it usually comes back to LaRousse, doesn't it? I always remember him having that contact with Hideki Noda at, uh, at uh, Hareth, which is just one of those moments that just uh, amused me at the time. But also, even to this day, when I see a picture of Mansell in the Rothmans-Williams, there's a certain incongruity to it, isn't it? And you see a picture of him winning in Adelaide, and you're like, oh, yeah, he did win in Adelaide. That was just ridiculous. Even decades on, I'm still finding it quite difficult to come to terms with what an amazing story that was. And you've got to love the image of Red 2 as well. It doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well as Red 5, but I'm glad that that was a nice little touch that they added for Nigel. Before we get going, remember to get your questions in for our series finale, where you can ask us anything about F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005. Just use the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And thank you to everyone who has sent in questions via email already. That's certainly proving popular since we added that address. Thank you as well to everyone who has left us a five-star review and submitted a question there as well. I'll catch up on a few shout-outs that we've missed quickly. Thank you to YT, WhenHowY, 99 Reynard, and Barrett M for your reviews. They're much appreciated and it's always good to know how many of you are out there enjoying the show. And remember, if you'd like to get early access to new episodes before they are released on a Thursday and you want to listen to the shows ad-free, then consider joining the Race Members Club. To find out more about the other benefits on offer and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. And we'll have a special exclusive piece of bonus content for our members off the back of this episode. So listen out for more details on that. But let's crack on with Mansell's Williams comeback. This isn't an episode that's going to reflect on the events of Imola 94, nor will it focus too much on David Coulthard being thrust into the limelight initially although he will come back to DC at various times when his story clearly intertwines with Mansell. 
Before we get to Nigel, let's look at some of the other drivers who were in the frame for this drive and perhaps why they didn't end up driving the number two Williams at all in 1994. And we'll start with Alain Prost, Senna's nemesis for so many years. And at this point, he was, of course, the reigning world champion. In many ways, you could say Prost made sense as a potential replacement at Williams. He and Senna had made up in the months following Prost's retirement at the end of 1993. And Prost was being paid to stay at home in 94 by Williams and Renault as he was on a two-year contract but agreed to step aside a year early once he learned Williams was signing Senna for 94. Around the time of Senna's funeral, which Prost attended after much deliberation, he was quoted as saying, We were enemies at one stage, but at the same time we were very close. We had a high mutual respect for each other and both realised that one without the other was not the same. I was proud to compete against him. With his death, half of my career has gone. In his honour, I will never sit in an F1 car again. Now, Prost had to clarify that last comment when he considered coming back to F1 in late 1995 with McLaren, and Alan said what he actually meant was he couldn't possibly sit in Senna's car at that time. So, Karun, given everything that Senna and Prost had been through, was it understandable that Alan didn't even want to consider the idea of, of coming back to sit in Ayrton's car? Yeah, I think so. I think the the pressure of coming back and taking over that seat, um, and, and you know we know what Prost is like. He's a you know he's a meticulous driver who prepared and planned and and you know didn't really do things by half measures. And I think arriving at at let's say they missed Monaco, but let's say arriving at the Spanish Grand Prix. Round five, without having tested the Williams, tested the passive car, the height of expectations of being the reigning world champion, taking over that seat from Senna, um, who had been on pole for the first three races in that car. I, I just don't see the incentive for Prost to do it. You know, it just would not have been, would not have been anything that appealed to him, I think, in terms of what would he have gotten out of it? What would he have, there's nothing left for him to prove. He left Formula One as a four-time world champion. At that time, the most successful driver in the history of sport in terms of wins, reigning world champion. I think he just had more to lose than, than gain by coming back. Another driver who came much closer to returning to Williams was Ricardo Patrese, who'd only just retired from F1 as well at the end of 93 after one season with Benetton. Patrese had raced for Williams full-time from 1988 to 92. And he met with Frank Williams at the Monaco Grand Prix, where Williams ran only one car for Damon Hill, as Karun hinted at there. That weekend, Patrese said Williams was like part of his family. And he added, if this family now needs help from me, I will not refuse. But Patrese changed his mind after seeing the horrible accident of Carl Wendlinger at Monaco, which resulted in the Sauber driver being put into a medically induced coma as he fought for his life. Patrese revealed his change of heart to the Italian newspaper Gazzetta dello Sport, saying, I will never race in F1 again. Before Imola, I was motivated. But after the accidents to Roland Ratzenberger and Senna, I did a lot of thinking and had a lot of doubts. Then after the Monaco accident, I realised I hadn't smiled for two weeks. I knew that the game wasn't for me anymore. Ed, we can't really argue with that logic, can we? How do you think Patrese would have stacked up in comparison to what we saw during 1994 from Mansell and Coulthard in that second Williams? I think it's quite easy to be dismissive of, of Patrese as an option, but I actually think he'd have been a pretty decent choice. At the very worst, 
a very safe pair of hands, an excellent test driver, vastly experienced. And I think the thing we have to remember is he'd have been much more at home in the passive car. He'd struggled up against Mansell in 92 in the active Williams, but in 91, in the passive car, he'd performed really, really well. So he didn't get on so well with Williams in 92. The Benetton in 93 for most of the season had a slightly more crude active system and he didn't stack up well against Schumacher at all. But I think Petrosi would have been a good choice and could well have been quite helpful to Hill in terms of the expertise he could bring to sorting out a, a troubled car. If you look at what they contributed, Coulthard managed, I think, 14 points. That was a decent return for a driver who was inexperienced and being fed in, but Patrese was a plug-in and play option. And I suspect even if he hadn't scaled the heights that perhaps Mansell managed to with his performance at Adelaide, for for example, I think Patrese would have delivered a pretty healthy number of points and, and probably helped Hill a great deal. The problem with putting Patrese in, of course, is that the appeal to the sponsors or to Renault as the engine partner or frankly to Formula One and Bernie Eccleston because after the the events at Imola, Formula One didn't have a current world champion or any world champion on the grid. And therefore the incentive to get back a Mansell over a Patrese or a Prost over a Patrese was obviously much higher, I think, for everyone involved from a commercial standpoint. I doubt if Patrese would have liked the idea as well of flitting in and out of the car to let Mansell drive it. I think that would have been a, an all or nothing deal for him. Yeah, Ricardo and Nigel uh, got on at times, but they also had a little bit of history. There was another driver who ruled himself out of talks with Williams after the Wenglinger accident. And this one didn't come to light until two years later when Frank Williams revealed it at a media lunch in 1996. Williams made its first attempt to get Heinz Held Frentzen in 1994. And speaking about it two years later, Frank Williams said, it's not common knowledge that Heinz Harold refused to leave Sauber to join us. The day after Wenglinger's accident, he said, I can't walk out on them at a time like this. Ed, we know that Williams kept a close eye on Frentzen over the years that followed, and it eventually got him in 1997 when it didn't turn out too well. Would things have been any different if Frentzen had gone there just a few races into his F1 career? It would have been very, very early for that move and hugely high-pressure circumstances for him. It's hard to see if Ricky Frentzen would have fared better than the more experienced one who struggled later, especially in a car that the team was trying to get on top of. Coulthard, of course, was a rookie as well, but had the advantage that he was at least embedded in the team. Frentzen would have had to come in cold. It's interesting, and you could argue that maybe a, a young much more undercooked Frentzen could have been formed into the driver Williams needed, but it was absolutely... A, thrown, a flung in at the deep end one. I, I can't see it would have really worked. And everything we've subsequently learned about Frentzen suggests it wouldn't have worked well. But he was, of course, the Schumacher beater at that time, wasn't he? He hadn't yet been tested. He was the next big thing. And that's the point, Ed, is, you know, Frank Williams got it into his head that Frentzen is going to be the Schumacher beater. He was in, in junior formula or in Group C, um, although it's always... Hard to compare, I think, in sports car racing because you're sharing a car with another driver. But he had this reputation of being the Schumacher beater. They looked at it. Schumacher's won the first four races of that season. Frentzen must be amazing. And, you know, it was one of these things. You talk to other people who were around Frank in that era, in the mid-90s, and they all keep coming back to it. They never fully understood why, but Frank, for some reason, had this obsession that Frentzen was going to be the one to to beat and destroy Michael and the only one who could do it. And um, 
you know, listen, he he was a very, very good driver. You look at what he did in that 99 Jordan season. He was exceptional that year. He, this is a guy who took pole position at the Monaco Grand Prix in 97. You know, he, he won at Imola. These are tough circuits. So I'm, I'm not by any means suggesting that he was, uh, you know, he was a no-hoper. Absolutely not. He was a very good driver. But he was not the Schumacher beater that perhaps Frank had built his expectations up in his head of. And I think when it comes down to it with Frentzen, it's less ability that's the concern and more the kind of mentality and the ability to perform under pressure and in certain circumstances that I think is the, the big asterisk against him, which is why this circumstance doesn't seem to strike me as a good fit for him. And of course, in those two years at Williams, he couldn't beat Jacques. So uh, what chance did he really have in 94? The first serious talk of Mansell possibly coming back emerged much to the frustration of his Newman Haas IndyCar team on the eve of the Indy 500 at the end of May. At that point, Bernie Eccleston said he'd been talking to Carl Haas about releasing Mansell for any F1 races that didn't clash with the IndyCar schedule. Bernie said, I never wanted Nigel to leave F1 in the first place. If I can make it happen, I will. Now, back in 1994, and ever since, actually, everyone involved in this story has been very clear that Mansell's comeback uh, owed a lot to Bernie's interference or encouragement, shall we say, with a bit of help from Renault, which we'll come back to shortly. But Karun, you, you mentioned Bernie earlier and F1's need for a star name. Was this direction that Bernie chose and the way he got so involved, was this Bernie at the peak of his F1 ringmaster powers, or did he take the meddling too far? Uh, a few years ago, I went down to um, Mansell's museum on the island uh, with one of your former colleagues, Stephen English, to, to film some stuff for Williams Heritage. And we spent the whole day with Nigel and actually spent a good chunk of time talking to him about 94. And it, he said he, he arrived at the circuit one day walked into the Newman Haas truck and Carl Haas called him into the office and said, basically, Bernie's bought your contract. Bernie now owns your contract and he can tell you where to drive when you want, when he wants. So, um, you know, Nigel claims it just, it came to him as a bit of a surprise that he knew talks were ongoing, but it came to him as a bit of a surprise that the deal was done. And essentially from that point forward, Bernie would dictate as part of the negotiated deal with Carl Haas, when Nigel would race in Formula One and when he would be racing in IndyCar and essentially plan the rest of his year for him, which uh, you can imagine with Nigel, you know, for someone who likes to be in charge, likes to be in control, I, I imagine didn't go down particularly well at the time. I'm sure he got paid handsomely to do it. So that probably, you know, softened the blow. That's very consistent, actually, with what Nigel said at the time whenever he was asked about this. He did say it was nothing to do with him. And it's it's quite consistent with some of the other stories we've picked up from researching this episode. So how did that release come about? Let's hear for the first time in this episode from Richard West. Richard was Director of Sponsorship and Marketing Services for Williams at the time. And he had a job on his hands at this point dealing with the concern from Renault and new title sponsor Rothmans in the wake of Senna's death. Richard was then thrust into the middle of the negotiations to get Mansell back, and he was flying back and forth uh, across the Atlantic during this period. And uh, after a long career 
on the commercial side of the sport, working for various top teams and companies. Richard is now a motivational speaker, event host, and high-performance business coach. So let's hear his memories of how the Mansell deal unfolded in 1994. A number of names got thrown into the hat. Uh, a number of managers contacted the team, as you would imagine, a couple of drivers directly. But what had to be taken into consideration was an individual who had had remarkable success and would bring stability and respect almost immediately back to the team. And of course, when you look back over the Williams drivers, Nigel was pretty fresh because he'd gone at the end of 92. He'd been hugely competitive and won the championship in IndyCar and he was riding high. And Christian Consen, who was running Renault Sport at the time, uh, Duncan Mayer, our financial director, Peter Goodman, our lawyer, Patrick, Adrian Newey, myself, Ian Harrison, Frank, discussed it quite vigorously in those few days before we flew to Sao Paulo for Ayrton's funeral. And the decision was made very shortly after that, that both Renault and Rothlands, particularly Rothlands, it was only their third race. And uh, quite clearly, you know, there was no such thing as all publicity as good publicity. It was a very difficult time for them. And Renault dealers around the world and Renault senior management really started to seriously consider whether or not, you know, they wanted their brand associated with it. And to be fair to him, Christian Consent, who at that time was riding high as the Renault Sport representative you know, and the relationship between Williams and um, Benetton, brought it up quite soon and said, we really should be talking to Nigel because he will bring gravitas he will bring a track record and he has got huge respect amongst the workforce at Williams. Obviously, Bernie Eccleston played a central role. He and Frank clearly spoke, you know, Frank was team owner and principal and Bernie had a long conversation. And I was brought into probably the second part of the conversation almost on the first day. We went to Monte Carlo, as you know, and out of respect, nobody ran. The pole position was left empty, but immediately Monte Carlo was over. The first issue was, of course, speaking with Carl Haas, who... I only ever met Carl on two occasions. Once was socially and the other time was in his palatial home in Chicago where we sat with his lawyer and Peter Goodman, our lawyer, for several hours discussing the release and they weren't prepared to release him for the entire second half of the year. And therefore, much discussion took place about the races where the team felt and Renault felt he would be of maximum benefit. And eventually, and Bernie did play quite a role in this behind the scenes, continually talking with Carl, a deal was agreed. Uh, I wouldn't go into that now for reasons of you know, confidentiality, even all these years later. But a release was arranged. But the interesting thing about the trip to Tampa was in a very serious vein. You know, we all tried to keep it very hush-hush uh, because obviously the media were hugely interested. And Nigel said, don't worry, you know, I'll meet you at the airport, but let's do it discreetly. And the four of us walked out of Tampa International Airport to find Nigel sitting in a, a cherry red Bentley with the roof down, you know, waving his arms furiously. And I just turned to Peter Goodman at the time and I said, well, if that's subtle, I'd like to see Noisy. <laughs> but we were there and uh, we camped out in Tampa for the best part of five working days in order then to negotiate with Nigel, you know, his terms to come back and drive for Rothmans Williams Renault. To me, Bernie's role in this, though, is absolutely what the promoter of a championship should be doing. It's it's in the interest of the championship to make sure it's got star names. Nigel Mansell was a huge draw. It, it was, you know, right up there with the Senna's, Prost, PK's. And with all these other three names gone, Bernie needed a star name. Damon wasn't yet 
one. I think he became a, a big star name in 94 and through 94, especially when he won the British Grand Prix. I think Michael was very much on the ascendancy and nobody at that stage knew how good he would be or what, what a stellar career he would have. And so absolutely, I think Bernie did the right thing. And in some ways, I feel like we're missing that in Formula One a little bit today. You know, I, I do wonder whether if Bernie was in charge, he would have just maneuvered things a little bit more. So George Russell ends up in that Mercedes for next year or I don't know, just just maneuver things around a little bit for for the show, I think. Um, and I, I think, yeah, you know, it's, it's it's fantastic to see that the efforts that he went, you know, to to do a deal with a, a team racing in another championship that he doesn't control. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary, really. And I think at that time, it was probably in Bernie's interest to take away some star power from IndyCar as well. Uh, fascinating stuff from Richard West there. We'll hear from him again later in the episode. But Richard was very generous with his time and answered far more questions than we have time for in a full episode here. So we will be releasing his full interview on what went on behind the scenes at Williams during this time exclusively for the Race Members Club. So if you're interested in hearing that interview in our bonus podcast feed, head to the-race.com forward slash members club to sign up. The deal was all confirmed after the Canadian Grand Prix and Mansell came back to do a test at Brands Hatch, which was open to the fans. Mansell claimed in his mid-90s autobiography that 15,000 people turned up, although reports from the time suggest it was more like 5,000. But if you see the pictures and footage from that test, it was clearly a decent turnout that showed that Mansell was still a huge draw. And he said that seeing so many fans turn out to see him was one of the happiest moments of his year. Mansell did a big press conference on this day and he said that the word comeback was a bit strong as he was just being given permission from Newman Haas to do a one-off, although Frank Williams made it clear he was hoping Mansell would do the final three races of the year as well once the IndyCar season had finished. Nigel inevitably faced some questions about reuniting with Williams after they'd fallen out during his championship year in 1992 and that's a saga we'll do a full episode on in the future. Mansell said in 94, there were differences of opinion back then uh, and there were areas that were taken personally, certainly by myself. There were certain decisions taken back then which did not go hand in hand with what I wanted personally. But in the last two years, I have seen a bigger picture, especially being in America, the commercial capital of the world. He also said that if you'd asked him two weeks before that test, if he'd be coming back to F1, he'd have said no. And he'd later explain in his book, that he thought that contractual situation in America would be too complicated. And then Bernie Eccleston unraveled it and turned Mansell's world upside down. Ed, looking at briefly at the fallout from 92, which we will come back to later, were you surprised at this point that Mansell and Williams were able to bury the hatchet after the way things had ended less than two years prior? Well, pragmatism can ease these things along, can't it? The bottom line is that Williams and Mansell had been through a lot together, so there was a, there was a great mutual respect there to to build on and, and recreate. Williams obviously needed a top liner, and Mansell will certainly have reveled in the fact that they needed him again. In fact, it wasn't just Williams that needed him. The whole of F1 needed his star power, needed Nigel Mansell to come in and save Grand Prix racing. So I imagine that made it easy for him to 
to put to the back of his mind the concerns he's had about the way uh, it, it had ended. And it also gave him the chance to jump into a front-running F1 car at a time when Newman Haas with the Lola were, were really struggling in IndyCar in the face of Penske's utter domination. So I suspect the component in this that would have been the more troublesome given the history might have been Mansell, but there were so many reasons for him to like it. And he could kind of write it off as this sort of natural justice that uh, he was forced out, but F1 needed him so much they had to get him back. So what did Damon Hill make of all this then? He'd been thrust into the team leader role following Senna's death. And when Mansell tested at Brands Hatch, Frank Williams said the team needed a shortcut to winning as many races as we can this year. Frank went on to say, I believe we can still win the Drivers' Championship with Damon. We just want to give ourselves every opportunity to win races and score maximum points each time. Frank was clearly conscious of upsetting Damon here as he added, We're not relying solely on Nigel to win races. We've got great confidence in Damon. All I'm trying to do is have the strongest team in F1. Hill wasn't convinced. In his book, he described Coulthard as a stopgap until they could pull in another big-name driver. But Damon felt all the fuss around bringing Mansell back made, uh, and this is what Damon said, made me look like not even the first choice in my own team. And he added, I was now in contention for the title and I felt I should be getting a lot of support rather than being undermined behind the scenes. Did I really appear that incapable? Karun, was, was Damon right to feel that way? And is there an argument that Williams would have been better off with the stability of keeping Hill and Coulthard and letting Damon grow into that team leader role properly. I think so. I think, you know, from a pure let's support Damon's championship campaign, yes, I think you you could argue having DC alongside him as playing the supporting role would have helped. But I think, you know what, on the flip side, if you look at how Nigel arrived at Magni Corps and he was bang, straight away on the pace, fighting Damon for Paul. Frankly, he only missed by a few hundreds, didn't he, when he when it all shook out in, in the final qualifying, you know, that would have forced Damon to raise his game. I think in the car, having Nigel alongside you would have forced Damon to, alongside him, I should say, would have forced Damon to raise his game. The problem is outside the car, Damon <laughs> tells the story of how they go to Magnico and after the first session, he gets out of the car and the entire engineering team, including Patrick, are all congregated around Nigel, hanging on every word that Nigel's got to say. And Damon's sort of standing there going, uh, excuse me, I'm the championship contender here. What's going on? And I imagine, so outside the car, having Nigel there was quite a, a destabilizing force. And then you got, you know, DC hanging around the garage. And then Nigel had to ban DC from the garage because he thought you know, it, it was... Uh, it was having a bad effect on him, having this guy basically loitering, hoping Nigel falls over, breaks a leg, so he can get back in. So I think outside the car, you know, on top of everything that had happened at Imola and obviously the after effect of of losing arguably the greatest driver of, of all time, um, you know, the trauma that Williams had been through. Then they've got this whole thing happening. So for Damon, I, you know, the, the, the mental pressure of 94 must have just been... Tremendous, um, but yeah, I think ultimately, from the from a peace of mind standpoint, having DC would have been great. But I think actually, in terms of pushing Damien to raise his game, having Nigel there was was probably quite useful. As Karun said, there Mansell didn't take too long to get up to speed in France, and in the end, he qualified second to Hill in a Williams front row lockout. 
The race didn't go quite so well. Both Williams drivers lost out to a fast-starting Schumacher off the line, and after that, Mansell couldn't keep pace with Schumacher and Hill. There were suggestions that he was struggling with fitness. Even Damon said later that Nigel had clearly been living well in America. But Nigel said the problem was that he broke his golden rule of never changing the car between Saturday and Sunday. He tried to copy a trick that had worked at Manicor in 1991 by raising the rear of the car for the race, but it made the balance worse in 94. Mansell lost a place to Jean Lacy at the first stops, then was back in for more tyres just 11 laps later, and he retired before the next round of stops with a gearbox problem, but he gave himself a 9 out of 10 for his comeback, and he felt that he'd got back into the swing of F1. Ed, you don't have to give him a rating out of 10 unless you want to, but what did you make of Nigel's performance when he came back in France? Yeah, I think it was genuinely very good for a driver being flung into Formula One again after 18 months odd since his last race. Everyone else is into the swing of things. He's having to get on top of the car. So the fact he could extract that that kind of raw pace from out over a single lap was very, very impressive. Obviously, it was harder in the race. I think he dropped back from Hill at about six tenths in the early stages of the race. So he didn't have the race pace or the real understanding of how to to manage the the tyres, etc. And clearly fitness was a bit of, of an issue. But in the circumstances, to jump back in and do that was still a reminder of how high class a driver he was. And too often, I think that's that's overlooked with Mansell. So yeah, a very, very good effort. If he was coming in permanently from that point, you'd say, yeah, great start. Give him three or four races and he's going to be bang up to speed and, and they're winning races, which is all you can ask of a driver in that situation. Frank Williams said after that weekend that he was still hopeful um, that Nigel would race for the final three races of the year. But obviously we know that deal was already done. Nigel was keen that the deal wasn't just for four races with nothing at the end of it, though. He wrote in his book that he required more commitment than that to accept the upheaval of making any sort of F1 return. Nigel wrote, the decision to return to Formula One would mean a massive upheaval for our lives and it was one we didn't want to make lightly. We were happy and settled in America. If I was going to make the commitment to come back to Formula One, I didn't want it to be just for a handful of races. I wanted another crack at the World Championship. So we negotiated a deal whereby I would drive four races in 1994 with an option for 1995. Karen, seeing as this was a deal being driven by some external commercial forces, shall we say, to get Mansell back into F1 as a big name. Was it fair enough for Nigel to say, hang on a minute, I want some longer term assurances here, so I'm not just doing you a favour, and then I'm kind of kicked to the curb? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's got anything to do with the the commercial side. I think as any racing driver, you want a bit of stability and you want a peace of mind to know where you're racing next year. It doesn't matter, you know, who you are, what category you're in. Having a deal in hand is gives you a lot of uh, mental peace of mind, really. So I imagine from Nigel's standpoint, that was the biggest thing is he he wanted to know, is he going to be back full time for 1995? And that would have allowed him to prepare himself physically, mentally over the winter of 94 to be ready for a championship battle in 95. And, you know, as uh, as we know, and we talked about during the, the McLaren Mansell episode, it's... It was an utter disaster, wasn't him, uh, you know, do, and, and that was purely done for commercial reasons. So what I'm trying to say is when a deal is done purely for commercial reasons without really thinking about the competitiveness of the package, it doesn't ever go well. And unfortunately, that's what that McLaren deal was about, is purely for Marlboro and Mercedes to have a big name. And 
Um, yeah, I think, you know, for Nigel's standpoint, this was Williams at its zenith, wasn't it? Absolute zenith between really middle of 91 until the end of 97. So, you know, for him, the motivation to drive a car that could potentially win the world championship would have been very different to one tugging around the midfield in 95 in a McLaren. Yeah, I think as we mentioned in that McLaren episode, Nigel said at the end of that that uh, he hadn't given up everything he had in America to drive a, a rubbish McLaren. But talking about 95, Mansell already had an IndyCar contract for 95. And he said that before Bernie and Williams came calling, he was involved in discussions with Lola about how to get back on the pace after a difficult 1994, as well as being part of a long-term marketing strategy for Newman Haas-sponsored Texaco. And he was involved in discussions about who his teammates should be when Mario Andretti retired. Nigel has since claimed that he'd, ex he'd signed an extension with Newman Haas through to the end of 1997. And he said in an interview with Motorsport magazine years later that there were things going on around this time that he still can't talk about today. Whatever his contractual situation was at Newman Haas, by the end of August 1994, it was announced that Mansell would be leaving IndyCar at the end of the year. And at the same time, his participation in the final three F1 races of the year was finally made official in public. Carl Haas said, Nigel has expressed a strong desire to return to F1 and the team does not wish to stand in his way. Renault got a bit excited around this time, saying that Williams was in talks with Mansell for 95 as well. And the manufacturer even said that it hoped they could do a deal because a Williams package with Nigel and Damon can win. Ed, this isn't an episode about Mansell's IndyCar adventures, although we will do that another time. You can't do that. It's not a V10. It's not well, even a V10 plus. <laughs> lots of people want us to do some more IndyCar stuff. We, we can make an exception. We can make an exception. He drove, in, in his second year, he was driving a V10 when he came back to F1. There's enough Tenuous, okay. Yes. Uh, the, link, the links are always tenuous, Karun. You know that. Our first ever episode that you were on was about a V12. <laughs> um, but Ed... Looking at Mansell in America, is there any part of you that thinks it's a shame he didn't stay there for 95 and beyond? Yeah, it was a bit of an unsatisfactory ending, wasn't it? After what he achieved in 93, absolutely phenomenal. And then 94 was just pretty tough with Penske on top and even how struggling with the Lola. Considering the F1 career didn't reignite in a sustained way, it is a loss that maybe there are a few more chapters of the Mansell legend to be built in uh, in IndyCar. He could certainly have won more races. Maybe even the Indy 500 would have gone to him. Perhaps he could have stopped Chat Villeneuve from winning the, the kart whoa, title. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> uh, Mansell versus Zanardi, that has a good ring to it, doesn't it? But there was perhaps also an element of having been there, done that in America for Mansell when he won that title in, in 93. So the fact he was so keen to get back into F1 maybe hints he didn't really envisage an extremely long stay there but it's very enticing the idea of Mansell hanging around through to the through to the late 90s which he could very very easily have done having success there and maybe our our, our memory of his last season in, in IndyCar wouldn't be Dennis Vitolo landing on him in the Indy 500 during a caution period which is what springs to mind when uh, when I think of Mansell in 94 so it wasn't really a fair exchange was it a premature end to his IndyCar career in exchange for what amounted to six Grand Prix starts. Yeah, it would have been great. You know, Kart went on a great run of spectacular competition over those following years. And if Nigel had been a part of that, it could have been fascinating. But let's move to the end of 94, the back end of 94. We'll get to Jerez because by this point, Damon Hill 
had been confirmed as a Williams driver for 95, and the battle for the second seat was now between Coulthard and Mansell. Coulthard finished his uh, run of races in good form, signing off with a podium in Portugal, having upset Hill in Italy by refusing to let him through until Damon got right up behind his rear wing. And then DC stayed right behind him to prove a point until he ran out of fuel at the end. But DC said in his book that those performances and the Portugal result in particular were a vital sign to Frank that I meant business for 1995. At the time, Coulthard said, my main focus has been to show I have all the ingredients to be a top line F1 driver. So Karim, looking at just as DC had to give the seat up again to make way for Nigel for the final three races of the year, was he just starting to come good and show that he might actually be worth sticking with for a full season? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at the early part of DC's season, uh, which started obviously in Catalonia, he was some way off Damon and it took a little while for him to get there. Uh, by the time he got to Spa, he finished fourth, um, fifth on the road, then Michael got disqualified and he, he was getting closer in terms of pace. But you're absolutely right. Monza and Estoril were two very strong weekends for him. And if you were Frank Williams looking at the big picture, looking at the long term, by the time you got to Monza and Estoril, Damon was also in a position where he'd gone through that run of races in the middle of the year where he was genuinely up there with Michael. You know, he, he was genuinely flourishing as this championship contender. He was putting together a strong run of races. Silverstone was a great race for him. Uh, and I think, so then, you know, the mindset of the leader, shall we say, Williams, around the time of Magni where it's like, oh, we're still, they're still having the after effects and the raw rawness of Imola is still there, versus later on in the year where things have settled down a bit, Damon has, has raised his game, he's stepping up to being a team leader, and all of a sudden you go, hang on, we can get this young guy who's now shown he can deliver podiums alongside actually we could have this lineup for the long term or for next year or the next couple of years and, and it could go quite well so at that stage I can I could start to see the merit in them having DC alongside Damon just looking at the big picture scenario and a battle for that seat quickly stepped up a few more gears during the Hereth weekend uh, which, as I say, was the first of Mansell's three-race run at the end of the year, because Frank Williams said Nigel's driving for a seat next year. If he's staggeringly quick, he'll make a good case. Mansell took a swipe at Coulthard's management around this time, accusing them of creating headlines and confusion. He added, they're putting out stories and being unprofessional. David Coulthard is a far better driver than that. He doesn't need that kind of publicity. I'm so far above it. The only comment I would say is it's disappointing. And Coulthard said in his book that Mansell pulled him for a very public chat on the pit wall at Hareth, where he told him words to the effect of make sure you've got other options in your back pocket because at this level, teams need experienced drivers. DC didn't appreciate the advice that he hadn't asked for. And he then upset Nigel by responding to that with, OK, can I borrow your wallet then? Ed, do you think some of the things Mansell was saying in public and in private and, and these actions around Coulthard, did they perhaps show that he wasn't as confident as before that he was going to keep this drive for 95? Yeah, no, no question. It shows that he was willing to fight for it. 
and he did really want it. I guess in his mind, when it all happened, it was a done deal from the start in that you come back, put in a few good cameos, then you go for the full season in 95. So perhaps by this point, it had really hit home that he left IndyCar with a, with a view to being the main man at Williams in 95 with a reasonable expectation of going for the championship. And it's all of a sudden a much more muddy future. So he was willing to, to fight his corner. And the fact that Coulthard was coming on strongly at the end of his stint, I imagine, made him seem a much, much bigger threat than than he had been. Because as Karun explained, DC w- was coming on well. And those last few outings, he was starting to look like a guy who was on the brink of being able to to get race wins for Williams. Mansell qualified third at Jerez behind Schumacher and Hill. But he had a messy race, dropping to sixth at the start, recovering to fourth, then damaging his nose as he and Rubens Barrichello got caught up lapping a back marker, which Ed managed to get into the intro of this show after a nose change for that after that he was a lap down and then after his next pit stop a mechanic noticed a bolt was loose on his front wing so he came back in to have that tightened and not long after that he spun out Coulthard was in the BBC commentary box this weekend and he later admitted that he had to cover his microphone because uh, and DC says I rather loudly expressed a few words that neatly detailed my enjoyment of this incident and how it might have a positive effect on the complicated politics that were shaping my career. The Jerez race uh, had come a week after the IndyCar finale at Laguna Seca, and Mansell said in his book that doing those races back-to-back with the eight-hour time difference and testing during the middle of the week to get back up to speed in an F1 car was almost suicidal. When he reflected on this again at the Autosports show in January '95, he said the jet lag meant my body was there, but I didn't have a clue where my mind was. So, Karun, you're uh, you're the racing driver here. Do you have some sympathy for Nigel there? I mean, we've all battled the challenges of, of West Coast jet lag when travelling to and from America. Was it perhaps asking a bit much to do Laguna Seca and then Jerez back-to-back? Yeah, perhaps, but then you got to... That's what you signed up for, you know? Well, that's what Bernie signed him up for, rather, I should say. And, and there are ways and things you can do to counter it, isn't it? You know, you you can get to Herat on the Monday and give yourselves four or five days to acclimatize. I personally would never say that jet lag is a, a good enough excuse for any racing driver, frankly. Um, you know, we all go to Suzuka in Japan and spend the weekend waking up at three in the morning, four in the morning, every week every day and what do you do you just have to get on with it and i often go back to the fact that people race at lamar with three hours of sleep and you you do it don't you you just you do what you have to do and uh so no i'm not i'm not sure that 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 flies with me um to be honest the thing that's really fun about mansell is he has all the excuses in the book which is normally the trick of a of a much lesser racing driver, a mediocre or failed one. Yet Mansell managed to combine that with being absolutely brilliant as well, which just makes him such a <laughs> bizarre and contradictory uh, character because he'd always have a list of things that are against him. But I think that was part of his makeup as well. It, it drove him on feeling like he was the underdog. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that's this is part of the Nigel Mansell story, isn't it? Is the the sort of him being the victim <laughs> it was was so often the end of a lot of the stories that he would tell and, you know, the injustices against him. But as you rightly said, Ed, he didn't need to necessarily do that because he was an extraordinary racing driver, unbelievably brave, unbelievably fast, committed, um, you know, in a car, just 
and and right up there. You know, he had a lot of bad luck actually. If you look across his career, uh, you know, could have and should have won the world championship in eighty six, eighty seven, ninety one. Uh, you know, I think there's. There's, there's a lot of merit to say Nigel didn't win as many world championships as his talent deserved, actually. And I think all the all the histrionics that came with it, that was all part of what made Mansell the box office character, which is another reason that F1 and Bernie were so keen to get him back at this point. The, the tension between Mansell and DC carried on at the next race in Japan. Uh, and by this point, it was coming from all sides, really. Frank Williams said he was disappointed that Mansell declined a request to do more testing between Jerez and Suzuka. Mansell said he needed time to go back to America and make the arrangements for moving back to Europe, while in his book he said he was worn out and needed a rest. Meanwhile, Damon Hill says in his book that by bringing Mansell back for these races, Williams couldn't have done a better job of making me feel like an understudy if they tried. Uh, then when they got to Japan, Coulthard claims Nigel suggested quite strongly that I was a distraction walking around the pits in the garage, which Karun mentioned earlier. And uh, this prompted Williams mechanics to make up signs with DC's face on them and put big red crosses over it. So, Ed, we've got Nigel, Damon, uh, DC, Frank Williams all kind of popping in here with, with their thoughts and all disagreeing with each other. Are we already getting to the point where this is starting to feel like it wasn't worth the hassle for anyone involved? Yes, perhaps not Williams or indeed Damon Hill needed when there was a championship there to be won. This, of course, was six months after MLS, so things had calmed down a bit and the desperation to, to get a megastar in perhaps had waned a little. After all, there was this amazing championship fight which everyone was excited about. I, I do think that Williams probably would have been well advised to get this all sorted out earlier to prevent all of this going on, but... It was abundantly clear that there was so much uncertainty and kind of indecision going on. And there were a lot of complications, in fairness, that made that difficult to do. But it just creates a weird sideshow, doesn't it? Just imagine, so talking about earlier, Damon Hill, seeing all the attention on Nigel Mansell in the in the Manny Core garage. This was perhaps a similar thing, that he was the guy going for the championship. Yet all the talk was about, is it going to be Mansell or Coulthard and all the, the rest of the sideshow about Mansell's approach, etc. So it's a really curious situation. Yeah, we covered uh, the Hill versus Schumacher element at the end of this season back in Series 1 and there was a story uh, mentioned from Damon in that episode where he said that on the grid at Suzuka, Patrick Head came up to him and told him that Nigel was 20 kph faster through 130R. And Damon said, well, that's great, but he's behind me on the grid. So what do you want? Do you want me to be faster through 130R or faster across the lap? We have got some racing to talk about now, though, because the Japanese Grand Prix produced one of the most memorable on-track moments of Mansell's 1994 cameo. He was involved in an epic battle with Jean Alesi, which was made all the more entertaining thanks to the Ferrari carrying a mega rear-facing camera. So we got these incredible shots of Mansell jinking one way and then the next, trying to find a way past in the rain and the spray. Mansell did get ahead at the final chicane on the last lap and crossed the line with his arm in the air, thinking he'd snatched a podium at the death but he'd forgotten the result was based on aggregate times because of a red flag in the middle, so Alesi had a gap to play with based on how far ahead he'd been before the race was stopped. Alesi knew this and let Mansell through at the final corner just to be safe, and afterwards they both embraced, and Alesi told Mansell he was completely mad, but very quick for an old man. Now, Karun, I don't think I've overstated this battle by calling it epic, in terms of pure entertainment, was this the highlight of Mansell's comeback in 94? 
I'd say winning in Adelaide was was the, was the highlight. But in terms of entertainment, yeah, uh, probably. I think, you know, Alesi and, and Nigel, actually both fairly similar characters, aren't they? Mercurial, theatrical, entertaining, exciting racing drivers, really. Um, and it was brilliant to watch. I think... What slightly takes a shine off me, off it for me, is the fact that they were so far behind Damon and Michael. You know, that day for me will always stand out for Damon's performance. It was an absolutely unbelievable drive from Damon that day, and uh, so yeah, while it was entertaining to watch, he was a long way behind <laughs> behind Damon on the track. There's also just the the excitement of that rear-facing camera that Alacy had. You can always remember sort of. Mansell darting around behind and looming in in the spray, which I just think added to the drama because there was that great view from off the Ferrari. And probably it would have been, if you're going to take anything away from it, it's because it was an aggregate battle. And while Nigel didn't know that, uh, Alacy certainly did. So the slight element of jeopardy was perhaps taken away. But Alacy's incentive was that Mansell was a lot quicker than him. So he knew if you let him through too early, Nigel would get up the road and claim the place on the timing screens as well. Results-wise, as Karun mentioned, the real highlight came next time out at the Adelaide finale. Mansell was fastest in Friday qualifying after Schumacher crashed trying to beat his time. And those positions set the grid because Saturday qualifying was wet. So that put Mansell on pole ahead of Schumacher and Hill, who were separated by just one point heading into the title decider. Mansell fell behind both of them at the start. And over the years, there has been all sorts of speculation about if he was ordered to or not. Unfortunately, there's no definitive answer we can give, mainly because Nigel has told so many different versions of this story. In his book in the 90s, he said that he made a good start, which I'd say is debatable if you watch it back and see how much wheel spin he got. But Schumacher got ahead of him, so when he saw Hill on his inside as well, he moved aside to let him get after the Benetton. In an interview with Motorsport magazine years later, Nigel said, I was told not to interfere with the race, so I deliberately made a bad start and just sat behind them. Then in an autosport feature in 2014, he went even further, saying, I was told all sorts of things by the powers that be. You will not be part of this race. Don't get a good start. Watch the race. Do not interfere. So, Ed, what do you make of all that? Uh, does that sound plausible to you? I don't doubt Mansell's sincerity that he did intend to do what he could to help Hill and not, not be massively in the way. But if you look at the starts Mansell did in that car prior to Adelaide, they're all pretty much a muchness and not great. He didn't get good launches in any of them. The Adelaide one was very, very similar. So I think the idea that he carefully calibrated his start to slip to third by the first corner, especially with quite a short run at Adelaide, I think is stretching the truth somewhat. Once he had Schumacher one side and Hill the other, of course he was going to happily slot into third place. But I doubt it was all carefully planned out uh, and he did drop back again in the race uh, quite rapidly so I think there's some truth in what he was saying there that they didn't want him to be uh, interfering too much with that with that battle but I don't think it was quite as carefully choreographed as uh, as he may have indicated. Mansell then lost a couple more places on the opening lap when he slid off at turn five skating along the outside curb and almost hitting the wall which dropped in behind Mika Hakkinen and Rubens Barrichello. He was very critical of himself afterwards for that error saying he should have allowed for the lack of grip after he'd gone offline in the opening corners and he said the off damaged his floor which made his car harder to drive for the rest of the race. 
So perhaps that's Nigel's explanation for why he fell back so much from Hill and Schumacher. We're not going to talk about the Schumacher-Hill collision that decided the World Championship, partly because we've already done that in great detail in Series 1, and partly because Nigel has always been very diplomatic whenever he talks about it. He bet His summary is basically he hopes Schumacher didn't realise his car was damaged after he'd hit the wall and, uh, and had seen Damon trying to pass him. The collision put Mansell into the lead, but he was then passed by Gerhard Berger during the second round of stops, and Mansell got the place back a few laps later when Berger made a mistake heading on to the, the fast back straight and uh, went off the track. Berger kept Nigel honest to the end, and Mansell ended up winning by 2.5 seconds to take the final win of his F1 career. So, Karun, how impressed were you with this victory, and the last one Nigel ever took in F1? I think, to be honest, if David and Michael hadn't collided, then, you know, obviously Nigel would not have won the race. But it, it was a strong performance. I mean, the reality is, I think I was more impressed with the fact that he took pole position. Um, you know, we had odd circumstances with the rain on, on Saturday, you know, washing out that qualifying. But ultimately, he was the fastest qualifier and Michael was pushing hard. You know, Michael had a monumental crash that weekend. So he was clearly pushing on and Nigel still emerged on top. I think, um, you know, on the whole, it, it was a strong performance. It was an impressive performance. I guess you can ask the question, would DC have been there to pick up the pieces? Probably, because actually, if you look at DC's last two races, as we mentioned before, he was right there behind Damon. So I think there's a strong argument to be made that, that DC would have actually been there as well um, in an equally good position to to take the win. So... But you you can't take it away from Nigel. You know, it's not easy to be parachuted in as effectively a substitute for a few weekends. He hasn't done the testing. He hasn't been in Formula 1 for a little while. As Ed mentioned before, it's 18 months. And on the whole, you can't be, you can't be too critical. Um, and, and you have to be quite impressed, actually, with the level of performance he delivers straight away. After the race, Mansell spoke about his future, saying he had three options. He added, I've got them all covered. I'm not sure which one will happen, but I know one will, and I can live with any of them. In his book, he said that after Adelaide, he was confident he'd bagged the Williams drive for 1995, believing that he'd played himself in over his four races. He said, I was very fired up about going back to Formula One full time, and I was excited by the prospect of a competitive season in the best car. I felt I had agreed a good deal with Williams and Renault for the four races in 1994 and for the 1995 season. I believed that would come to fruition and they would take up the option in my contract. But in the run-up to Christmas, I waited, along with everyone else, to see what decision Williams would take. So, Ed, before we get to explaining what was causing the delay in the run-up to Christmas and where Coulthard fits in to all of this... Do you think Mansell did enough over those four races to warrant a full-time drive for 95 with Williams? Well, considering in his position, he needed to prove that he could be back at the level he was in the past. Williams knew what Mansell could do historically, so it's just a question of showing he hadn't lost that sharpness and he wasn't suddenly too old to be doing it. And I think the qualifying pace on occasion showed that it was there. I think a Mansell fully fit, fully focused on F1, with the time to really understand how to manage the car over the race distance and, and build that consistency, I think would have delivered at high level. So from that perspective, I think he did show that he would have done at least a good job in a full-time drive for Williams in, in 95. Obviously, the fact 
Coulthard was performing well skewed that a little bit. If you're looking purely at Mansell and did he tick the boxes, I think he he mostly did because you can reasonably expect him to build on that. So what was the hold-up then? After Coulthard's second place in Portugal with his stock high, DC entered into discussions with Frank Williams about a permanent deal. Because at this point, the only contract Coulthard held with Williams was his original test driver deal, which had been upgraded on a race-by-race basis in 1994. The initial talks were for a three-year race driver deal, but Frank then moved the goalposts at the last moment, according to Coulthard. Suddenly, an on- suddenly only a one-year deal was on the table. Coulthard has said that a one-year deal was too short-term and that he had to protect his career, so that offer caused enough concern for him to start talking to McLaren. DC had dinner with Ron Dennis very publicly at Jerez, and while he played it down at the time, he has since admitted that that was a serious conversation about McLaren's plans for its Mercedes partnership that was starting the following year. So Karun, once Williams started seemingly messing Coulthard around a little bit, was it actually a very smart move from him to start hearing out approaches from elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the job of any racing driver. In the same way that I think right now, Valtteri Bottas and George Russell should be talking to Red Bull and should be talking to McLaren and you know looking at all of their options, even though they ideally both want to be at Mercedes. In the same vein, you know you have to keep you have to keep. Um, your eye on the market I think that's part of your job as a racing driver and and, you know DC at the time had a bit of questionable management as well you know he's talked about quite openly at IMG helping him out which in the long term okay panned out well for him because he ended up getting a a deal of McLaren that that came good but if he hadn't gone to McLaren he would have been in that 96 car and 97 and could have maybe won the world championship uh, in one of those years so in the end, you know, he made the decisions he made, but uh, and that's a second secondary subject. To answer your question, he was absolutely right to look at what options there are. It is really curious from Williams's perspective, though, because if you take the young driver, you surely tie them down for a long term because it's it's the old proven driver against the young ones. I don't really understand why they were messing about on this. If Coulthard was the driver they wanted, get him tied down. And Coulthard said in the weeks that followed that meeting with Rom, McLaren positively courted me to join the team. They romanced me. At times, it felt like I was embraced as a member of the team before I really was. In late 1994, Coulthard signed a letter of intent to race for McLaren in 1996. Williams contested this on the basis of its long-term testing deal, which Coulthard and his management didn't believe was enforceable as it wasn't a race contract. Coulthard also pointed out that this conflict blew up even though Williams wasn't offering him a race drive for 1996 at this point. But Williams did have an option on Coulthard until two days after the Australian Grand Prix. Coulthard tells a great story in Maurice Hamilton's book on Williams that we've quoted before. And uh, DC says he was running through an airport knowing that someone from Williams was going to try to serve him a letter to enforce a contract for 1995. And they caught him at the door to the plane and threw the letter at him, basically saying, you've been served the paperwork. And that meant the matter would go to the contracts recognition board. This was where things get interesting regarding Mansell. Before the CRB hearing, Frank Williams gave an interview to Nigel Roebuck and he said some quite telling things. Frank said, "Uh, Nigel will have to live with it. I've told him he's on hold and of course he's not taking it very happily. 
In those last races, it was obvious that Nigel wanted to drive next year, so he went out of his way to be cooperative, which was good. But Ed, looking at the idea that Mansell was on hold until after the CRB hearing, that sounds a lot like suddenly Nigel was the plan B if Williams lost out on Coulthard. Are you surprised Mansell was willing to hang around in those circumstances? Well, Mansell had no choice. Williams was the place to be, so he just had to hang on. He's 41. He wanted another crack at the World Championship. And realistically, it was only Williams that was going to give him that opportunity. The IndyCar bridges were burned. So being second choice, you either flounce off into retirement or you just hang on and and live with it. Given the prize was such a, a good drive in Formula One, he kind of had to hang on, although I doubt if he really liked it. I think... At the end of the day, though, when you look back in hindsight, DC was the right choice. You know, if you look at 95, DC was actually very unlucky, wasn't he? He should have won Argentina, should have won Italy, should have won in Belgium, I think was the other one. Um, Should have had strong result in Canada as well, comes to mind. I think there's a, you know, a bunch of races where he just lost points because of reliability issues, wheel bearing problems and engine issues, hydraulics, things like that. So... You know, he he was really the on-form driver in 1995 in in many ways for Williams. And so I think in in hindsight, he was the right choice. And Williams won that contract battle for Coulthard, which prompted DC to say at the time, Williams has an option on me, but we will have to change the contract. We will try to sort it out and see what happens. So that was referring to the claim that the only piece of paper Williams held over him was a testing contract. After the verdict, a Williams spokesperson told the media, we wouldn't have gone to all of this trouble if we only wanted to have him as a test driver. If Frank went as far as going to the contract recognition board, it's because he wants David to race. We know Bernie Eccleston was instrumental in bringing Mansell back to F1, and perhaps Bernie could see the writing was on the wall here at this point. So he came out and said, I think any team that doesn't take Nigel for next year is mad. He would be a great asset to any of the teams in F1 with his vast experience and motivation. We love him and we need him. Reflecting on the choice in their respective books, Mansell said Williams went for youth over experience, also pointing out that Coulthard was cheap. And Coulthard said, I got it because I was hardworking and dedicated, available and cheap and could do the job. Nigel was not so available, obviously dedicated, but he was also hard work. We've already heard Karun's verdict. Before we get Ed's, let's hear from one of the prime decision makers at Williams, none other than Patrick Head, who says that part of the motivation for choosing Coulthard could be traced back to that previous falling out between Mansell and Williams. I felt Nigel, I mean, the Nigel's departure in 1992 um, wasn't really ideal because Nigel's request early in the year was to get his contract for 93 and 94 signed early in the year. And at a test at Silverstone, um, Frank had uh, sent the motorhome up there. And I think uh, we had a meeting with Nigel myself and and Frank with Nigel, shook hands on a deal for 93 and 94. Uh, That deal was drawn up by the lawyer. The finances were all agreed. And that was sent off to Nigel, who I think at that time was living in the Isle of Man. Um, And then we heard nothing back. Week, Week went by, week went by. And during those weeks, of course, 
Nigel was winning race after race after race in the Active Ride 1992 car, which was an active version of the 91 car. And um, I think Frank had sent a few messages saying, can we have the signed contract back? Um, and it didn't appear. And then Nigel suddenly decided he wanted a lot more money. Um, I wasn't very impressed, quite honestly. My impression was that we'd done a deal, shook hands on the deal, and the that agreement was not chased by us. It was chased by Nigel. So uh, I think I was happily in support of carrying on with David Coulthard and not just going back to being with Nigel, really. So I don't think it was my decision alone, but I was quite happy to support it because I felt that Nigel had treated us badly. He probably thinks we treated him badly, but the truth was the other way way around, really. Great stuff there from Patrick. And before we bring Ed in, let's hear from Richard West again to get his insight on how the decision not to go with Mansell for 1995 was received by those commercial partners that had been so involved in bringing him back in the first place. There was great discussion about the following season, but in many ways, and much has been written and said about Frank's, you know, changing of drivers and what have you, he and Patrick and Adrian Newey and others within the team, technically, although we had great commercial success, I'm proud to say, in that era I was with the team, it, it, it was always based on engineering decisions. And I was never party to the final decision that actually said, thanks ever so much, Nigel, we've got the option, but, you know, we don't wish to exercise it. And it, it was, I think it was a shock to quite a few people within the team because he did an outstanding job in Adelaide. We saw the old Nigel there. He put in a really sterling race performance. And I think a lot of people thought, well, that's the natural progression. You know, he'll go back and do 95 and I think when you looked at it really as an overall picture, when I said, OK, that's the decision, I didn't have the same difficulties that I had in, in the winter of 92, early 93, because when I went back, the first job was to stabilise Camel and Labatt's and all the other sponsors of that era, because they were deeply upset that Nigel had left, having just won the World Championship. The sponsors did not react in that way, and Rothmans being the title sponsor of the team moving forwards, you know, we went up to Denham, we sat down, Frank and myself, we explained the decision and that we were going with DC. And they liked the youth profile. Damon had matured extremely well in that period and come so close to his first title at Adelaide at the end of the 94 season. But I think everybody just accepted that this was the new face of Williams. I've always had the most respect for Nigel. I, I, I can't fault, you know, when we went to Tampa his hospitality and the fun. I went fishing with him and stuff. And we, we spent some real quality time together. And I saw a different side of the man. But equally, when he was in his racing environment, as you know, as well known and well documented, he was a very forceful character. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right, Frank and Patrick didn't want that hanging over, you know, and then a difficult situation arising where you did this to me in 92 or whatever came up. And I think it was just a good thing that the team moved on. Let's finish up on Mansell then, because reflecting in his book, he said he was disappointed, but he respected Frank and Patrick for doing what they felt was in the best interests of the team long term. Mansell's option with Williams for 1995 entitled him to a payout if they didn't take him, which was believed to be £2 million. Coulthard, for what it's worth, went from earning £50,000 in 1994 to half a million to race the following year. So he certainly was the cheaper option. 
Mansell was disappointed, though, to learn through the media that he wasn't getting the drive before Williams told him that he said Williams handled everything correctly on the financial side. We're not going to get into how Mansell ended up racing McLaren because we did that back in Series 1. But let's quickly look at another key question we can perhaps ask at this point once he loses the Williams drive. And that's if perhaps he should have retired. Because after winning in Adelaide, Mansell said he didn't consider retirement because when you're winning, the last thing you think of is stopping. But he said in his book that when he lost out on the Williams drive, he did consider it. So, Ed... You can have your say on if Williams made the right decision to go for Coulthard over Mansell. And then I think we have to ask, should Nigel perhaps have taken that as a sign that now was the time to call it a day? Well, on the question of if Williams made the right decision, I'm going to slightly disagree with Karun insofar as I can look back on it with with hindsight. I think Karun encapsulated the situation as it was. But as I alluded to earlier, if you're going to choose the young guy, you do it for the long term. And I actually think that for a one hit in 95, maybe Mansell was the better option because he might have had that chance to fight for the championship. If you remember in our Nürburgring 95 episode, I think we talked about Adrian Newey's suggestion that Mansell may have won the championship. doesn't necessarily mean he would have done, but I think for just that one year, it, it would have made more sense to have Mansell. But ideally, you try and sign DC down for a, a longer-term deal and, uh, and not just kind of spend a bit of time blooding him for the benefit of McLaren. That was the slightly odd thing that happened there. In terms of Mansell's career, I don't think that what happened with McLaren after the the Adelaide win really changes the impression of his career. But it is kind of an almost comedic postscript to a a great career. Perhaps it was always going to be the way that Mansell couldn't go out on on a high, could he? 92, he could have walked out as world champion. After 94, he could have walked out having won at Adelaide, but instead he walked away after the after the McLaren uh, debacle. So perhaps it does add to that tapestry of the theatrical and the absurd that surrounds Mansell that, uh, that it didn't end that well. But I think if you're taking a dispassionate look at his merit, the merits of his career, which are very, very many, and as Karin said earlier, probably should have won more than one world championship, certainly could have done. I don't think that really factors into it. It's more just a, a slightly weird, unseemly epilogue, should we say. I, I just choose to forget certain parts of certain drivers' careers because it just takes a shine off it. Like I just ignore the fact that PK went to Lotus and had an abysmal time there. I, I just ignore Alan Jones coming back to drive that Beatrice Lola, you know, around in the mid-80s. It's just, and similarly, I just ignore Mansell and McLaren. It never happened just never happened let's just you know Mansell was a Williams driver through and through he drove some brilliant races at Ferrari and had some fantastic drama that followed him all the way from let's say it started from Monaco 1984 well no Dallas 84 until Adelaide 94 there was a there was a decade despite his 18-month hiatus from F1 there was a decade of Mansell drama that was just brilliant and that's the part that I'm going to remember fondly of the Nigel Mansell F1 story. The fact is, we could do a podcast called Bring Back Nigel Mansell, and we'd get a good 10 seasons out of it before we were scraping along for storylines. Not only was he brilliant, but he, he was a hell of a storyline. Yeah, he's going to keep us going for a very long time. But I think Karun summed it up well there. Oh, he's got his hand up. He wants to say something else. Go for it. I think we should also make the point that it's an extraordinary situation where the two top teams... Pennington and Williams ran eight different drivers that season. I mean, think about it. In the context of this year, it's like Mercedes and Red Bull running 
eight drivers. It just, we, we'd all go mad in the social media world that we live in now over that sort of stuff. But that's what happened. And it, it was just an extraordinary point and a subplot to this 1994 season. Well, I mean, we've said that we could get a whole program and multiple series out of Nigel Mansell's F1 career. We could get a multiple series out of 1994. I think just that little snippet you've mentioned there, Karun, I think that sums up 94, a bonkers year in F1, even if you if you look beyond the, the tragedies at the start of the year, um, which I must say we've been in no hurry to cover here. But there's plenty of other things going on, plenty of other controversies that we will come back to. And yeah, the, uh, the list of 1994 topics for this show is incredibly long, but we've ticked one of them off now, which is Mansell's 1994 F1 comeback. If, unlike Karun, you don't want to ignore the fact that he went then went to McLaren and you want to follow the story into his disastrous McLaren stint, head back to Series 1 where we covered that in depth. I've been told that Nigel has listened to that episode. Uh, someone sent it to him. And apparently his feedback was that he felt most of the things we said were pretty fair. So if Nigel, Nigel, if anyone sends you this episode as well, we hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed putting it together. And we'd love to have you on the show sometime. But whether you're an IndyCar and F1 champion or not, remember to send us your questions about anything to do with F1's V10 era using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com or leave us a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it and you can ask a question there. Thanks to Ed and Karun for joining us for this episode. We'll hear from you both again soon in this series when we branch out of the V10 era later on. But next time... We're skipping forward almost a full decade from 1994 to revisit the madness of the 2003 Brazilian Grand Prix, a race famously won by Giancarlo Fisichella and Jordan, even if they had to wait almost a week for the result to be made official. Mm -hmm.